There are five chapters in James' letter. This is our second week in chapter five. And we finish the chapter this week. So this is our last sermon in this wonderful little book, the Epistle of James. We'll be in James 5, verses 7 through 20. It's on page 1013 in your little blue pew Bible. Um, You may want to turn there if you brought your Bible or you have your Bible on a phone. Um, It may help you to see God's word for yourself. And as we turn there, let me pray for us. Uh, Lord, I ask that you would please help me explain this passage in a way um, that is clear and honest in relation to what James meant. I pray you'd help me exalt you as I do it. And I pray you'd help all of us um, hear, receive, and inwardly digest the implanted word. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. In this last section in James' letter, which goes verses 7 through 20 in chapter 5, there's a lot of themes that come up. You may have noticed this. Um, Themes like truthful speech, but your yes, BS, and your no, be no, verse 12. The theme of prayer goes through verses 13 through 18. It appears in every verse in that section. Pray for one another. There's the theme of confessing your sins to one another in verse 16. Verses 19 and 20, you hear the theme of pursuing the backslider, going after the person who wanders. But what I want to suggest today is that I I think really there's one organizing impulse or theme here that that underlies and animates all the others. And, And this is the theme of patient endurance. James' final message, I'll show you where it it comes from in a moment, but his final message for for Christians, and remember, he's writing to the diaspora, Christians everywhere, and this includes us. His final message is, don't quit. Don't quit. Keep enduring. Be patient, for the Lord is coming. And all these other themes whether it's being honest with one another, confessing our sins, bearing with one another, praying for one another, pursuing the wander. These are all part of the way we patiently endure until the Lord's coming. Let me show you the theme from the passage. James opens with it in verses 7 and 8. See what he says. Look down at it. Uh, verse 7 and 8. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth? Being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains, you also be patient. Verses 7 and 8 there. I, I want you to notice the, the image James uses to describe the Christian life in this passage. Did you see it there? It, it's a farmer. Um, it's a farmer standing in front of a field waiting for the crops to grow. In, in the early days of the church, there were, there were three main images that people would use to illustrate the Christian life. And we see these images come up in these early letters to early Christians that make up part of the New Testament. And these images were the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. So, for example, Paul says things like, share in suffering as a good soldier. He says that to Timothy. He goes on in that same letter to say of himself, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. Soldier image, an image of an athlete hard at work. And so so the Christian life could be compared to the grit or the endurance 
of a soldier. It could also be compared to the focus and effort and hard work of an athlete. Now, these two images, the soldier and the athlete, they're still popular today. You, you will see these in commercials. You can probably think of some commercials for sports drinks or shoes. The images of a soldier enduring, the image of an athlete hard at work, these images inspire us, don't they? But I wonder if, if you've noticed that you, you don't see commercials and ads leveraging the farmer, standing in front of the field, just waiting for the corn to come up, utterly helpless. He can't make it rain. He can't make the sun come out. He can't make it grow. He just has to wait. You don't see ads like that. Do you want to know why? Because patience doesn't sell. Patience doesn't fill stadiums. Patience doesn't inspire us. In fact, I think we find patience terrifying. We find it terrifying because patience means waiting, and we hate to wait. And waiting means things need to happen that are outside of your control, and we hate to be out of control. And do you know, as we get... Um, as, as life speeds up because of technology, all the psychologists and sociologists are noting that we actually get less patient. So a study done um, of 2,000 Brits, I'll pick on the British today, a study done on 2,000 Brits in 2019 found that all of the luxuries of modern life have made most people incredibly impatient across pretty much every aspect of their lives. Respondents reported becoming frustrated after just 16 seconds of waiting for a web page to load. That actually seemed like a long time to me. I thought, boy, I thought it'd be more like two seconds. <laughs> they became impatient after 25 seconds of waiting for a traffic light to change. It only takes 22 seconds for people to start cursing at their computers or TVs if streaming doesn't work. And respondents reported losing their temper after just 18 seconds of not being able to find a pen. <laughs> Our English word patience comes from a Latin word that literally means long pain. The Greek word that, that James is using here, that we translate patience, it too, it's, it's two words put together, and the first word means long, and the second word means hard or pain. This is why a lot of times a synonym for patience is what? Long suffering. Patience is enduring something difficult for longer than you think you can. Patience is waiting for something you long for when not having it hurts your heart. Patience is bearing up with a difficult person longer than you think you should. And friends, patience is essential to the Christian life. Do you know it's a fruit of the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and patience. Do you know in, in Paul's beautiful poem about love in 1 Corinthians 13, it's one of the most famous passages in Scripture. Do you, know, do you know what the first attribute of love is when he describes it? Love is patient. Paul commends Timothy for imitating his patience. You, he says to Timothy, you have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my patience. It's worth thinking about. Patience is a key ingredient of God's kindness. Paul says, do not presume upon the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. And patience is something Christians 
must put on. Put on then as as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. I wonder if you're patient. I wonder if we sat down together and looked at your prayer goals, your prayer requests for the summer. I wonder if becoming patient's on that. I wonder if on your list of spiritual gifts that you hope God gives you is the gift of patience. My goal for us today is not to make patience or waiting easy. It's not. My goal is to help you see that it's good. It's hard, but it's meaningful. It's hard, but it's purposeful. It's hard, but it's something you're called to do and you can get better at. And modern people make the mistake of thinking that hard is the opposite of good. Hard hard is not the opposite of good. The opposite of good is evil. A lot of times things that are hard are profoundly good for us. Patience is a good thing. I want to help us see it today. Here's how I would define it. Two ways I'd define it. You'll see this as we go on, but it might be helpful just to say this. Christian patience is waiting upon the Lord and bearing up with the Lord's people. It's waiting upon the Lord and bearing up with the Lord's people. And if if we want to define it by using images again, it, it combines the childlikeness of innocent faith. Patience believes that God is there, that he's working, that he's on time. It believes that. It's got childlike faith, but it's childlike faith clothed in the armor of a soldier because it's tough. It doesn't back down. It won't quit. It digs its heels in and says, I'm not quitting. I'm going to keep going to church. I'm going to keep worshiping, even though it's hard. Patience is faith clothed in fortitude. And we need it. So we're going to spend the rest of our time simply asking, what does James have to teach us about patience? Why is it so important? Why is it good? How do we develop it? So, so the first thing I want you to see is is. When it comes to Christian patience, we have to get really clear on what it is we're waiting for. You're all waiting for stuff. The question is, what are you waiting for? James is really helpful out of the gate in verse 7 because he he just tells us straight up. Verse 7, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. You're waiting for the Lord. Now, James uses a a kind of a a term that became a technical term here. It's called the parousia. You may have heard it. It's a fancy theological word. It just means coming, parousia. Sometimes people talk about the Lord's parousia. He's saying, wait for the Lord's arrival, the Lord's coming. And what's particularly interesting to me is his audience, they don't need any explanation about it. We probably do. What does he mean by that? They didn't. This was a very common teaching. The first Christians knew that Jesus had taught very clearly that he, although he was going to ascend to the Father, he was going to come back. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And Jesus actually taught a lot about what it was going to be like when he returned. Let me just remind us. Jesus taught that his return would be be preceded by signs. That when it happened... It would be as vivid and visible as lightning that illuminates the sky. He taught that his return would happen on a day when we cannot know in advance. 
It will involve him gathering his people to himself and his people being wonderfully transformed into perfect, unblemished holiness. At that time when he returns, the present heaven and earth will be transformed or replaced with a new and perfected earth and heaven. At that time, the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. At that time, God will swallow up death. What an image. He'll drink it down. He'll swallow it. And at that time, God will go up to each one of his people and he, would put his, he will put his hand on your face. And with his thumb, it says in Revelation and Isaiah, he will wipe away every tear. Some of you are waiting on that. You've buried a child. You are waiting for the resurrection that will happen at the Lord's return. You've buried a dream. You are waiting for your heart to be satisfied. You've been abused. You've experienced gross injustice. You are awaiting vindication. But we all together, we wait. We wait for the Lord's coming. Now, to be sure, this doesn't mean we're not all waiting for other things. Right? Some of you students here are probably waiting for summer break to come, or you're waiting for vacation, or you're waiting to get a job, or you're waiting for marriage, or waiting for children, or waiting for something. It's perfectly okay to be waiting for other things, having patience as you wait for other things. It's just important to see that the thing, the ultimate thing we're waiting for is the Lord's coming. Now, some people will say that when Christians get all focused on the fact that we're waiting on the Lord to return, we become no earthly good. I said this last week. They get so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. And I can understand how that could happen. But I want you to see that this, this is entirely not the case if we understand what the Lord's return means. I want to show you two ways that waiting on the Lord's return actually makes us more, I think, effective in our earthly life. Number one, the first thing waiting on the Lord does is it makes us less demanding in the present. If you believe that ultimate life, ultimate joy, ultimate fulfillment, ultimate heaven, ultimate justice await the return of the Lord, you will stop demanding ultimate happiness, ultimate justice, ultimately heaven from all these things on earth that were never meant to be that for you. You see, when we stop believing in the Lord's return, we start asking all these things on earth to be heaven for us. But notice this and notice this carefully. In verse 7, James does not say, be patient until the job comes. Be patient until the marriage comes. Be patient until the children or new house or promotion comes or healing of your leg comes. He says, be patient until the Lord comes. So, we are less demanding of this life. It doesn't mean we don't want it to go well and we don't enjoy it. It just means we understand. We understand we're dealing with proximate happiness here. Second, waiting on the Lord actually makes us more serious about living this life well. And here's why it does this. Because if you'll notice, the returning Lord is not just pictured as a moment of joy in this passage, but also a moment of judgment. Notice at the end of verse 9, James flips from the image of the Lord coming to, he says, end of verse 9, Behold, the judge is standing at the door. 
What does that mean? Jesus' return will bring both joy and judgment. These things are not mutually exclusive. Jesus taught that when he returned, there'd be a great separation between those who love him and those who do not love him. And each of us will individually stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for our life. Here's how Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10. Paul says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Many Christians, I think, forget that even those who are in Christ, who, who love Jesus and have salvation, even those who are in Christ will also stand before the judgment seat of Christ. All of us will. Now, what are, what are you judged for if your sins have already been forgiven? You are stood before the Lord not for a judgment of salvation, but for a judgment related to stewardship. You see this in the parable of Matthew 25 of the manager who leaves people with talents and then he comes back and he, he evaluates how they've stewarded the talents. And so he, here's how I think this is going to work is it, it's not so much a cruel, angry judgment. It's actually an evaluation that we so deeply long for what C.S. Lewis calls the divine accolade in his little essay, The Weight of Glory. And it's this deep need that every inferior has, every pupil has for the teacher or the coach or the dad to look at you and actually see you and say, well done. So here's what you'll be evaluated on. First on things we all hold in common. This, I'm speaking to Christians right now. You, you, we're gonna be judged or evaluated based on how we stewarded our salvation the indwelling Holy Spirit, the scriptures, the gospel message. Jesus will say, I, I notified you that you had eternal life in the middle of your mortal life. How did that affect the way you loved people sacrificially? He'll say, the Spirit indwelled you. Did you love the Spirit? Did you, did you, did you follow the Spirit's lead? He'll say, you were given the scriptures. These were not simple these were not simple things to preserve over time. Did you go deep in the scriptures? He'll say, you were given the gospel message. How many people did you share it with? And you'll say, one, my children. And he'll say, well done. Well done. Maybe you'll say a thousand and he'll say, well done. There's also things that he gives us um, the parable in Matthew 25 calls these talents. These are unique gifts to you. These could be everything from your IQ to your personality to your athletic ability to the family of origin you didn't choose but you were given and it gave you all these opportunities. Whatever it may be, he's going to look at these particular things he's given you and he's going to say simply, did you consecrate all this unto me? Your, your career and your family, were you really for me? So you see, if you live in the present knowing that it doesn't have to be heaven, you won't demand it to be heaven and you'll live a bit lighter. And if you live in the present knowing the Lord is coming back to ask you what you've done, you'll take it more seriously. You know, I, I have the image in my head of, of a big family um, and, and dad leaves on, on a business trip and he says to the oldest son, all right, boy, you're in charge. And when the dad's gone, the son knows he's not dad. Like he can't settle things the way dad can. He can't make everybody happy the way dad can. But he also knows that dad's coming back. So he does his very best to steward his little role as head, head of the household for that moment. That's what it's like. God's not asking us to bring heaven right now. We're not God. 
But God is coming back. And we want to do all our best to honor him. So, so this is just all the first point. It's a long first point. The others aren't this long. But it's just to say that get really clear about what you're waiting for. We're waiting for the Lord to return. That's our first point. And our second point is somewhat related. This is what we're waiting for. I want to ask now, why are we still waiting? Like, wouldn't it have been better if he came back last Sunday? You know, Christians really wrestled with this in the early church. Why hasn't Christ returned? Why are we still waiting? You see, in, in Acts chapter 2, the church is born. This is happening sometime in the 30s of the first century. And when the church is born in Acts 2, it's when Jesus ascends, the church is born. It happens when there's this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And it's fulfilling this prophecy from this old prophet named Joel. And here's how the prophecy goes. It's quoted by Peter in Acts 2. It goes like this. In the last days, mentally underline last days, in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So when the Holy Spirit's given in the middle of the 30s or whenever in the first century, guess what's starting? The last days. So you can't fault the early Christians for thinking, well, I don't know how long could the last days take? If you're on vacation and your kids are like, how much longer are we going to be here? You say, I don't know, this is like the end of the trip. They'd be like, all right, I don't know, a day, two days. So Christians wondered when generations would start to die, especially. He hasn't returned. And, and here's why this is significant, because when you start to have uncertainty, like let's say, you, okay, I'm waiting on the Lord, but then when you have uncertainty about whether or not he's going to come back, or you, have, you, you start to think that his delay is purposeless, it completely undermines the will to wait. You're just waiting for nothing or your waiting is pointless. So, so this had to be addressed by Christian leaders. And I, I want to just briefly show you how Peter, St. Peter, addresses this in his second letter. It's very helpful. Peter says in 2 Peter 3, he goes, look, scoffers will come in the last days scoffing. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? This is already an issue, right, in Peter's life. Peter then qualifies, he goes on, excuse me, to clarify the Lord's timing in very helpful ways. What does he say? He first says, and this is in verse 8 of 2 Peter 3, he says, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. So, so the first thing he's saying is you need to revisit how you understand time. The spiritual world doesn't operate under time the way the temporal world does, hence the word temporal world. You know, um, C.S. Lewis in his uh, series uh, Narnia, the Chronicles of Narnia, if you're familiar with this, it, it, there's these kids and they go into a wardrobe and when they go through the wardrobe, they leave the normal world and they go into this amazing world called Narnia and it's a great analogy for the spiritual realm and when they're in Narnia, months and years can go by and then they go back through the wardrobe and what happens? No time has passed. Lewis got it. Time is different in these two realms. And so Peter, just quoting Moses from Psalm 90 and passages in Isaiah, just says, look, for God, a, one earthly day is a thousand years. A thousand earthly years is like a day. So it's been 2,000 years since the church was born, since the last day started. It's been 2,000 years for us. It's been two days for God. 
It's been, we've been in the last days for two days. So, so why are we waiting? Well, first, it's not because God is slow. Second, Peter points out, it's not because God is purposeless. And this is crucial. He goes on in verse 9. He says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. Some of you need to hear this in your own lives. He's not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is a crucial passage. You want to know why you're still waiting? Because God is at work. Your waiting is your experiencing of God, your experience of God being right on time. And what Peter's telling us is, the Lord is not slow, but in fact, he desires that none would perish. So God is at work in the world in myriad ways, introducing people to his son, Jesus. He's at work redemptively around you and in you. In, his, in your waiting, God is sanctifying you. He's always at work. He's never off schedule. He's never late. Peter says very clearly, God is not slow. So let's just apply this for a moment. What are we waiting for? We're waiting for the Lord. Why are we waiting? And I think this is applicable not just for the Lord's return, but for anything you're waiting for if you're waiting for the Lord to provide it. Why are you waiting? Because God is strategically bringing about that which will bring the most good for you and for a million other people. And, and if you remember back at the beginning of James, in James 1 verse 5, do you remember he says, pray for wisdom. You need to, when you wake up and you think of the 15 things that you're waiting for, you know, Charles Spurgeon used to say, you should wake up every day, run to your east window, open the blinds and look at the clouds and say, ah, he's not coming. I love that image. I love that image. You should do that on the happiest day of your earthly life. Still wake up and go to the window and open it and go, okay, I get second best today. It's pretty good, the second best. But, but when we feel this, no, not yet, right? He's not coming back or he's not doing whatever. I think we need to pray for the wisdom that, that James says we can pray for to help us see the strategy in what's going on right now. Maybe God didn't return today because he's working on your neighbor to get your neighbor ready to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Maybe God didn't provide whatever you think you need today because he's working on you. And you simply, need. there are billions of things God is up to. Pray for the wisdom to trust him and to start to see strategy in his timing. God is never late. So why are you waiting? You're waiting because God is right on time. So we've seen what we're waiting for. We've seen why we're waiting because we're part of God's plan, not our plan. And, and I want to conclude by just saying that um, patience or waiting for a Christian is not a loner sport. It's a community affair. And I want you to see this. And, and, and what I mean by this is, one, I think you need others to practice patience. I mean, have you felt that in your life when you're really waiting for something, how helpful it is for a person to come alongside you, pray with you, and just listen to you? And you're like, I can get through another day. You need others, but I'll tell you this, I need your patience. You need my patience. You do not want an impatient leader. Your brothers and sisters in the pews around you, they need your patience because their work's in progress, being sanctified. 
they hope you won't quit on them. They really hope you won't quit on them when you realize in the year ahead that they're not perfect. So patience is a community affair. Let me show you this. So the first thing I noticed when I looked at this passage from verse 7 through 20 in James 5 was all the communal language. So, so James used his favorite term for the community, the familial language of brother. Um, you could translate it brother or sister. You see a little footnote there in the ESV. But, but be patient, brothers, verse 7. Don't grumble against one another, brothers, verse 9. As an example of suffering and patient, brothers, verse 10. Look at, look at the prophets. But above all, my brothers, verse 12. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders, verse 19. He's speaking to the community. Then he uses this phrase, one another. Verse 9, do not grumble against one another. Verse 16, confess your sins to one another. Then he uses this phrase, among you. Is anyone among you six? Is anyone among you happy? Is anyone among you wandering? And what what all this needs to tell you is that James believes that the health of this local church depends in measure upon your individual patience. And your individual patience depends in part on the influence of this local church. You know, um, I think operating in the background of this passage, and I think a lot of the thinking about the church waiting for the Lord to return, here's the pattern, right? The church is waiting for the Lord to return and it's hard, right? And, And they're getting feisty. And I think the background image of this is Israel waiting to enter the promised land. Um, We heard this read earlier from Numbers 14. So here's the story, right? Israel is saved, right? Old Testament salvation. Israel is saved out of slavery in Egypt to be brought into the wilderness, to be given the law of God, to become the people of God so that they can inherit the promised land, Old Testament heaven, right? And, And what's happening here is as they're being prepared, what do they have to do? They have to wait. And it's hard. So what do they do? They grumble. They grumble at God. They grumble at Moses and Aaron, their leaders, and they grumble at each other. And God judges them. And he makes them spend a whole nother generation, 40 more years in the wilderness because they're grumbling. Do you see the connection in what James is saying? Look at verse 9. James says, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. This is coming right from the image of Israel. He's saying, you guys know what happened when they grumbled. They literally said things like this. It was better in Egypt. There was better food. I mean, some of us, we, we will take up the Christian walk and we'll realize it's harder than we thought. We'll get a decade in and we'll say, you know what? It was better when I was a sinner. I had more friends and I had more fun. That, that can happen in your heart and you start to grumble. James is saying, be careful. That's the moment to say, no, no, no. I'm waiting upon you, God. I'm going to be patient. So, we, we need to be very careful in the days ahead to not grumble towards one another. And, you know, as I was, I, was, I was thinking about this, about what the last four years, I've been the rector here for four years, and I was thinking about what the last four years have been like and, and what it was like when I accepted the job. And I thought there were, there were at least three, four things that happened that I never in a million years could have anticipated that were huge things. They, they were things, some of the things that affected the whole world and the whole nation. And there were times when I had no idea what to do. And, and it was, you know, it could have been, you need to comment on a current event or you need to comment on a global health pandemic and et cetera, et cetera. And, and friends, you were patient with me. You were. I didn't know what I was doing. And, and, and you were patient with me. I, thank you. I think you're a patient community. Not perfect. 
I'm not saying there was no grumbling, but you were patient with me. Sometimes I hear people say, well, gosh, who would know what to do in this situation? Friends, in the days ahead, things will be hard. They'll be good too, but the Bible's picture of the last days is not a great track of progress. It's kind of up and down, and actually it says a lot of things will get harder in the last days, and it says many will fall away. We're going to have a lot of occasions. You know, when you get grumpy, when things are hard, when you're suffering and you're tired, what goes? Patience. You lose your patience. And I just think we're going to have a lot of reasons to lose patience in the days ahead. So, so let me just leave us with three ways. If we just, I'm going to sweep through the end of the letter here. Three ways we, we, we practice patience as a community. Um, number one, patience means not acting. Not acting in haste, not acting out of anger, not acting out of spite, not acting out of fear, but taking that moment to take a deep breath and saying, you know, I want to give my brother or sister in Christ the benefit of the doubt. I really disagree with them, but, and this is what you do, you remember that you've been shown patience. Do you know how patient God has been with you? You know how patience God is, patient God has been with the world since the flood of Noah when he promised he'd never destroy the world by water again? Just one big act of patience. He's been patient with you. you. You often don't know what you're talking about. You often aren't very nice. You're often very critical in your heart. You're often hard to love. He's patient with you. So you be patient with your brothers and sisters in the church. Now, now not acting doesn't mean we don't ever do anything. It doesn't mean we, we, we let wrongdoing rampantly go. It doesn't mean I, I let false teaching go in the church. It doesn't mean we, we don't stand up if someone's being hurt. It doesn't mean we don't act at all. But you know what I mean. It means in those places when we want to act out and lash out, we pray for patience. Um, we don't grumble with one another. So first, patience in the community means we don't act out of haste. Second, it, it means that we, we practice a type of care for one another that's not born in offering quick human advice to fix the problem, but it's rooted in prayer and listening. Verses 13 through 18 in this passage turn to the complete image of Christian communal care, and it's rooted in prayer and confession. And, and what this means is simply that, that as you come alongside your brothers and sisters in Christ who aren't doing well, your temptation is going, to be fixed, is going to be to fix it with a quick word of human wisdom. But in order to cultivate a, an atmosphere of prayer, you're going to have to be willing to say, I don't know, but I will pray with you. I will join you in the agony of waiting. I don't have an answer. And it's going to mean listening. When I, when I was in seminary, I got two brothers from seminary over here sitting right over there. We were in classes together. One's John Frederick. And we had, a, we had a professor named Ray Pendleton. He taught us counseling. He was like 80 years old. He'd been at forever. And I'll never forget, he had a class on what do you do in a crisis situation. And we all were totally green. We, had, we were like, we run. You know, we send the older guy on staff. He goes, no, you're going to have to go into these. Here's what he said. You go into a crisis situation. He said, don't tell people everything's going to be okay. If you don't know, it will. How do you know how it'll turn out? He said, listen attentively, listen accurately, look into their eyes, but resist the temptation to offer advice too soon. So if you read through verses 13 through 17, there is a prayerfulness and there is a confessing of sin. And I think this is an atmosphere where we listen to one another in the spirit to what the Lord is saying and we speak only words that we think are, are of the truest truths. This is what it means to be patient. If you're going to cultivate 
a, a community of prayer, friends, you're going to have to learn to wait on the Lord. And if you're going to be a community that listens, you're going to have to be patient. So that's the second thing. We care for one another through patient prayer and patient listening. Third and finally, how do we show patience communally? We pursue the one who's wandered with the same grace God showed us. Verses 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders, underscore anyone, not just your friend. If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Living in the last days as we are, the love of many will grow cold. People will find teachers to tell them what scratching, itching ears want to hear. People will leave the faith. They'll call it many things. I'm taking a break from church. I'm on a spiritual quest to find inner light. I've deconstructed or I deconverted. And our temptation, my temptation is going to be to be cynical, to jeer, to get mad, to say things like, well, they were never that solid. Their politics set them up to fall away. Friends, we can't do that. When someone wanders, patience says the Lord is not done with them. I'm going to pray for them and I'm going to ask God. This could be your child. It could be your parent. It could be your best friend. It could be someone you went to seminary with. And, and you say, God, let their name not leave my mind. You have not forget, forgotten them. Don't let our church forget them. And in thoughtful ways, you go after that sheep. So let me close. James has reminded us that faith without works is dead. He's reminded us that we need to care for the least of these. He's reminded us to watch our tongue, what we say. And here at the end, friends, he simply looks at you and says, don't quit. Don't quit. Don't quit. Be patient. Wait upon the Lord and be patient bear up with the Lord's people, even with me. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your, your kindness has as part of it the quality of patience. Even if we don't pray the rest of the day, you're going to show up with a listening ear to hear our voice tomorrow morning. You are so patient. Help us, Lord, be steadfast. Help us endure. Help us be patient until that great day when on the clouds you come in glory to judge the living and the dead. Amen.